When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to CNN's Democratic presidential candidate town hall with former Congressman John Delaney at ACL live at the Moody Theater in Austin. Uh, so we're going to go to another audience questioner. And we have with us right over here, Warren Robinson. He works in the energy industry in Houston. Warren. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Um, college costs are soaring, and I'm really worried. Uh, here in Texas, even the public universities are twenty dollars and $30,000 a year. Not only do I have no idea how I'll send my own kids to college, but I also worry about the way this will impact the growing gap between the rich and the poor. Yep. So what are your plans for making college more affordable? So again, uh, Warren, this is a question that comes up everywhere I go. Right? There hasn't been a town hall I've been at where people haven't come forward with this question, which shows how much anxiety there is. And when I went to school, right, if you look at how education has gone up in cost, it's gone up about twice the rate of inflation. So it's much harder, much harder for young people today than it was for someone like myself. So there's a couple things we need to do. I've called for what I'm calling pre-K through 14 to be the new K through 12. So I think every kid should start with pre-K as a right in this country. It's the best investment we make, right? It's the, be- it's, it's the best investment we make. We actually need more zero to three, particularly for low-income kids. But your question is about college, right? And so I think everyone should have something after high school as part of basic public education. Either two years of free community college or some type of career and technical training. Because our kids need it. Last year, the US military said that 70% of the high school graduates weren't eligible for the military. So obviously, what that means is seven out of 10 kids graduating from high school need something else. So what I call for is free community college, I want to lower the rates on student loans. Right? right now, the federal government makes money on student loans. I don't think we should make any money on student loans. Right? <laughs> so I, I, want to charge, I want to charge a rate on student loans equal to the government's cost of funds. So that's the second thing I want to do. I want to have more repayment programs tied to your income. Right? President Obama actually started that, and it was successful. I want to do more of that. You know, so those are some of the things I think we need to do. Because if someone's going to four-year college now, if that's the path they want to go, and that's not right for everyone, but if that's the way they want to go, if they can get two years of community college for free and then do two additional years and have the rates on their loans be lower and have creative loan repayment programs, that's going to make four-year college much more affordable. And then we'll also have a society where everyone's getting something after high school, which is what they need. But just to underscore how terribly unfair this system is right now, the only debt in this country that can't be discharged in bankruptcy is student debt. So if you happen to, uh, unfortunately, have to file for bankruptcy in this country, every debt you have can be discharged, meaning erased by the bankruptcy judge, except student debt. How unfair is that? That shows you how kind of rigged this system is against students. And those are the things I want to do to make a difference. Just, Thank you for the question. Yeah. Let me just follow on that, sure. the point about uh, students 
being able to declare bankruptcy, is, is that the best way for kids to... No, it's not, but it's more of a point, and, and I kind of led on this issue in the Congress, in part because I, I hadn't realized it until, until I actually had someone in my district tell me about their experience. No one wants to file for bankruptcy, obviously. But the whole point of bankruptcy in this country is that, you know, something happens and you need this process to get a fresh start. We've actually written the laws in this country so that you can't get a fresh start with respect to your student debt. So no, that's not the right thing to do. If, if people have a lot of debt now, I want to have programs where they can refinance their loans at lower rates and with, with more flexible repayment programs. But it's more of a point of how unfair the system is. We've got a lot of things in this country, Jake, as you know, that are structurally unfair, right? Where, where kind of the little guy is getting a bad deal. And this is a, a good example, I think. I want to bring in uh, Jacqueline Lavornia. She works as a strategist for Southern New Hampshire University. Jacqueline. Good evening, Congressman. Hey, Jacqueline. Thank you for taking my question. Thank you for asking it. I was wondering, how will you prepare the American people for imminent displacement and job disruption resulting from advances in artificial intelligence and automation technology? I'm so glad you asked this question. Because to some extent, this is actually the most important thing for us to be talking about. People think by 2030, 50 million jobs in our country could be displaced or fundamentally changed because of artificial intelligence and automation. So I've called for a national artificial intelligence strategy. I founded the AI caucus in the Congress, and I've called for this country to have a strategy. Right? Other countries have it. Germany has one. The EU has one. China absolutely has one. Trust me. We don't have one. It should have four components to it. It should be focused on work, which is what you're getting at. How do we make sure people have the skills? How do we make sure there's jobs in the future? Well, I think, they, I think there will be. Right? But we have to make sure they're everywhere and in all communities. You know, last year, 80% of the venture capital in the United States of America was invested in 50 counties out of 3,100 counties. Think about that, right? We have to make sure technology jobs and these kind of things are happening everywhere. So our national AI strategy should focus on work. It should focus on national security, because that's really our threats going forward. It should focus on privacy. Right? My wife uh, is the Washington director for Common Sense Media, which is do does a lot of work on digital privacy, and it's a big issue. And it should also focus on programming bias, meaning the machines that, that people are coming up with now, these miraculous machines, they're going to make all the decisions that human beings have historically made. And we've had a hard time getting the bias out of our human-based society. I worry it's going to be programmed into all the machines. But your issue, which is the future of work, is a, is a very big issue for me. I think there will be a lot of jobs in the future. I just want to make sure everyone can get them, and they're located everywhere in this country. So thank you. Uh, the next question comes from Ariel Smith. She's from Houston. She works at an energy technology company. Hi, thanks for taking my question. Sure. Uh, having grown up, grown up in the most, one of the most diverse cities in the country, I understand both the threat and opportunity that illegal immigrants have, well, immigrants have brought to my community. Uh, I firmly believe that if there wasn't a market for uh, the illegal immigrants to, to bring in, so by the way of drugs, labor, trafficking, that we could dramatically reduce the problem that we see at the border currently. Right. Uh, what would you suggest that we could do to domestically to combat the markets that make uh, illegal immigration so lucrative? Well, it, it's, a, it's a terrific question, and, and I've spent a, a bunch of time at the border in the last year. I went down to Brownsville and McCallum to look at some of the economic issues associated with what's going on, on the border. And my wife and I went down about two months ago. We took 14 law students to Dilly, Texas, 
where the largest detention facility exists in this country, to help people seeking asylum make their case. So, you know, I've tried to really spend time really seeing what's going on on the border. You know, we've got to reduce the market for uh, drugs in this country. And we all know what we're doing now doesn't work, right? Having these things being sold in the shadows, et cetera, which is why in many ways there's such a movement at the state level to legalize marijuana, to decriminalize it, and at a minimum to allow it to be legal for medical purposes. And I think the federal government should get out of the way and let that movement continue. Because right now the federal government is blocking it by keeping marijuana as a scheduled substance. Right? And I think that's preventing the states from doing really what they want to do. So I'm in favor of that, which would basically get marijuana out of the shadows and get it into a, a market where it could be regulated, where we can make sure it's labeled and distributed appropriately, where we can tax it. So that's one of the things we need to do. But as we all know, there's a lot of other drugs that are coming into this country. And we have a huge addiction crisis in this country. We have to invest in technology at the port of entries, which is where 90% of this stuff comes in. So that's another solution I would do. I want to Thank br- you. I want to bring in Estevan Avilas from Austin. He organized the gaming festival here at South by Southwest. Estevan. Hi, Mr. Delaney. Uh, my question is, uh, how much do you see yourself putting weight into Christian values and the teachings of the Bible in your decision-making as President of the United States? It's a good question. Esteban, right? Congratulations, by the way, on, on organizing the gaming aspect of the conference. That's terrific. It's I fir- coming up next weekend. Oh, it's so coming up. Got it. Stay tuned. Uh, I firmly believe in the separation of church and state. Full stop. So a, a, lot of us get our, a lot of us get our values from our faith. Right? A lot of us get values in terms of, I'm, I'm Catholic. You know, my wife and I and our, our daughters were practicing Catholics. And, and to some extent, some of the social justice orientation I have probably comes from that. But I don't think my church and my church policies and doctrines should decide public policy in this country. Because I also believe... <laughs> I also believe strongly in the freedom of religion. Right? And I believe strongly in the separation of church and state. So, so I don't think church, anyone's religious doctrines should inform public policy. But we all know people's faith informs oftentimes how they think about the world. So thank you. So let me, let me just ask you a follow-up, sure. because I know you're a practicing Catholic. Um, uh, you're deeply involved in your parish. Um, your party... The Democratic Party is at odds with your church mm-hmm. on a number of subjects, but let's just let's just talk about uh, abortion. Right now, abortion rights groups consistently consider you an ally. Mm-hmm. But as a Catholic, is this something that you struggle with at all? I don't struggle with it as a matter of public policy at all. I'm pro-choice, and I. So, <laughs> and I completely support a, a woman's. Uh, decision to make our own reproductive decisions about our own body, fully. So I don't struggle with that. I don't, I don't struggle with that as a matter of public policy, not at all. Okay. I want to bring in uh, Len Edgerly from Denver, Colorado. Enemy is your fellow American. Mm-hmm. I think that is so corrosive and so damaging. Right? I, as I said, I think what a president should do is be bringing us together, appealing to, as Lincoln said, our better angels, lifting us up, by telling the American people that we can do better, but we have to do better together. Not as Democrats, not as Republicans, 
but as Americans. And I think he's a deeply divisive president who fear mongers, and his approach is not who we are as the American people. It's not who we are. But I also think what he's done internationally, right? One of the great assets of this amazing country is the alliances that we've developed since World War II. We've worked so hard for 70 years to work with our allies, right, on a value-based approach to building a world order for peace and security. And it has been in the best interest and the self-interest and the national interest of the American people. He has a very narrow transactional view of the world. He doesn't value our allies. He doesn't value the institutions that we've worked so hard to build. He doesn't believe in a values-based approach, right? Which is why I believe he lacks a moral compass. So that moral compass, or that lack of a moral compass, animates it, animates itself in terms of how he divides the American people, but also in terms of what he's doing to our allies and these institutions that we've worked so hard to build, you know, NATO, things like the Paris Accord that President Obama worked so hard on, you know, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which I was a big supporter of. So, you know, it's a long list of, of grievances that I, I, that I have with him as our president, but I think it's this fundamental lack of a moral compass. I think that will be the biggest lasting damage. On the topic of foreign affairs, uh, let me bring in Alexandra Barrienta. She's a tech recruiter who lives in the Austin area. Alexandra? Hi. Um, my question is, um, all the national security agencies are in agreement that the U.S. was targeted by mm -hmm. the Russians seeking to, um, to shake up the 2016 ele election. So what is your plan for defending the United States against another attack like that? It's a great question. You're right. All 17 national security agencies in the United States of America, all 17 of them, are in unanimous agreement that Russia intentionally interfered in our elections. So I believe them over Putin. So I'll start with that. <laughs> so, you know, so our elections are, are, are in many ways the most sacred thing in our democracy. So we need to be hardening our election systems in this country to make sure they're safe from foreign interference. And this president hasn't done enough in that, and I will. But I also think you have to deal with Russia, and they have to understand that they can't do this. Right? So that would be my approach. Right? I wouldn't believe Vladimir Putin just because he said he didn't do it, which is what the current president is doing. I would believe our intelligence agencies. I would make it clear to Russia that, that we have a zero tolerance policy as it relates to them interfering in our election. But I would also make sure that our systems are hardened, right? That they're hardened against cyber attacks generally, but against this attack specifically, because it gets to the core functioning of our democracy. Thank you. Thank you. So Congressman, you talked earlier about going out and meeting voters and, and, uh, and meeting a lot of them uh, who have had to deal with addiction, and yes. especially with the opioid crisis. I want to introduce you to Lynette Pogue. She's an accountant here in Austin. Lynette? Hi. Um, as a mother of a recovering addict, my family and I would want to know like, what you would do to expand the national conversation regarding this opioid crisis with practical steps to eliminate or uh, at least decrease this epidemic. Thank you for the question. It sounds like you've had to deal with a very difficult situation. And I can't tell you how many times I've had questions like this. Right? This, is, this is just ravaging our country. About 200 people die a day 
from addictions, over 100 from opioids. It's a public health crisis. It's a public health crisis. And we have to be confronting it as a public health crisis. Right? So that's really what we have to do. We have to be confronting it as a public health crisis. We have to be confronting it as a mental health crisis. I think a president's voice should be present in this conversation, but I also think a president has to get some things done. Right? There are real programs that work. When I travel around this country and I go to communities, I see nonprofits on the ground that are actually making a difference. So there are people who are fighting this on the front lines. Right? Police officers, when you talk to members of our terrific law enforcement community, and you talk to them about how their job has changed, and across an evening, you know, 80% of the things they're called in on are overdoses. Right? So it's consuming so many communities. Part of it is because of all the economic despair we have in this country. Huge parts of our country have been left behind economically. You know, 50% of the American people can't afford a $500 expense. Right? Those are the conditions that breed addiction. We haven't treated mental health on parity with physical health. That's part of the problem. We haven't. If, if, I were to, if I were to ask people in this room, which I won't, to put up your hands if you've had a member of your immediate family that has a mental health issue, I bet every hand would go up. So this is a huge crisis, 40 million Americans, as I said. So we have to address it as a mental health issue, as a public health issue. We have to deal with the pharmaceutical companies, right, that have... Remember how I said to the other gentleman, I think it was Warren, how I, I talked about how students, student debt is not dischargeable in bankruptcy? Well, Purdue Pharmaceuticals, there was stories last week how they were going to file for bankruptcy to avoid the liability associated with this. Just put it in contrast kind of how our laws are set up in this country. But, you know, it, it, it's tearing Americans. It's going to create a huge foster care crisis in this country. It's just tearing our country apart. We have to put resources behind it. We've got to be backing things that work. And we have to treat it as the public health and the mental health crisis that it really is. And we have to do things to improve the economic conditions in communities that create the environment for this kind of stuff to happen. Because it is a scar on our country right now what's happening. Thank you. Thank God bless you, Lynette. Thanks for your courage talking about this today. I want to bring in Al Carroll. He's a recruiter in the technology industry from Indiana. Al? I will be blessed to welcome a second little one in June. Um, I'm also blessed to work for a company that allows me six weeks of paid paternity leave. Um, I was the first person... I was the first male at my company to take advantage of the policy, uh, and it was amazing. Uh, what plans, if any, do you have to ensure paid parental leave is a right all Americans have access to moving forward? Great question. Congratulations on your second on the way, and God Thank bless you. you. You know, I, my wife and I have four amazing daughters, so I, I know the feeling and the excitement uh, you, you're feeling right now. And uh, this is really important, right? It's, I think it's a basic right, and we should have paid family, you know, paid parental leave policies in this country. And there's a bunch of legislation, including ones that I've supported in the Congress, that effectively create an insurance fund to allow it to happen. So everyone contributes a very, very small amount. Part of their paycheck, we create a national insurance fund, and we allow people to access it. So in my company, so I started two businesses prior to running for Congress. And I took them public. You know, I, they were on the New York Stock Exchange. And one of the things I was always really proud of is the benefits that I provided to my employees. It was good for them, but it was also good for the bottom line. And I think people need to realize that not only are these policies good for families, and they're good for people, they're also good for our economy. Right? These are smart economic policies. Right? These allow people to be more engaged, have better work-life ba work balance. 
And so I think it's an incredibly important policy, and I plan to advocate for national policy so that everyone has the benefits that your company gives you, and it's good that they're doing that. So thank you for that question. Thanks, Al. I want to bring in Maggie Curry from California. She works in marketing at a winery. Maggie. Mm. I do, yeah. Good evening. Good evening. So I'm a married, working mom of two, and living in California, our family is faced with the double income need. So I'm wondering how your platform will address that struggle. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.